this is the neighborhood that I told you? Yeah. This is the Cimarron. It's people that have a lot of money. So there's a, a small, looks like a man-made lake with a fountain in the middle. And when I say small, I mean, I mean, it's pretty big. It's, it's, it's probably, you know, the size of a football field. Our producer, Michael Trevino, is tooling along with Nelda Garza through a wealthy neighborhood just outside McAllen, Texas. Opulent homes tower above iron gates. Wow, domed roofs, big tall windows. I mean, I'm basically just describing everything I can see over the, over the wall that they have up, but it's, um, even just their roofs look nice. Of course, Nelda and Michael are just passing through. They're en route to a different part of town. And now we're turning onto uh, a bit off of the main road. They turn and drive 15 minutes due north to a rural area. Everything's on stilts, uh, mobile homes mostly. But yeah, man, this looks like a totally different part of town. And there's a horse on the side of the road now. This community is isolated, and Nelda is something of a bridge. She connects the local healthcare system with the people here. So Nelda's visiting a friend, Norma. She's a source of sorts in an under-resourced Latino immigrant neighborhood. She's the one that gives me all the news from all this neighborhood. So-and-so had an accident, so-and-so is sick, so-and-so, you want to come and help her, immigration, because she knows I can get anybody yeah. over here. Okay. She's right here, look. Onta Norma! This is Norma. Hola. Un gusto. Miguel. In this community, the pandemic has hit hard. Here, the financial burden of even visiting a clinic can be overwhelming. Norma says her friend is sick, but doesn't know what she has. She thinks, though, it might be COVID. Norma says even for the cheapest local clinic, the woman, her son, and her husband, they're all going to have to pool their money together for her to go. So you pay whatever you make. Okay. But sometimes they don't even have $5. Yeah. From Texas Public Radio, this is Petri Dish. I'm Bonnie Petrie, and today, race and COVID-19. So it is a tough time right now in the United States. The virus has exposed all of us to increased risk, even while doing the most mundane things like going to the grocery store, going to work. But it's also exposed how communities of color are largely defenseless in the fight against an enemy that doesn't discriminate, but rather reveals to us our own discrimination. Racial inequality has been a problem in America for as long as there's been in America. We are in a structure that is fundamentally inequitable, that is fundamentally structured along racial lines and racial divisions, and therefore I would have to call it structural racism. Structural racism is the context in which healthcare operates. 
That's Dana Bowen Matthew. She's a professor at the University of Virginia School of Law. She spent years studying race and inequality in healthcare. People didn't just get up one morning and decide, I'm going to eat poorly, I'm going to not exercise, I'm going to do everything I can to get diabetes, and then predispose themselves at an individual level for these diseases. So why? Why are some people more often predisposed? Well, it's all part of a broken system that begins long before someone gets sick. Who have limited options for food, who have limited options for housing, who have limited options for employment, who have limited options for safety, right? Here's some numbers for you. The New York Times recently crunched them. They're from the CDC, right up to the most recent surge of COVID in the United States. And it found that Latinos and African-Americans were three times more likely than white people to become infected with the COVID virus and nearly twice as likely to die from it. This is no kind of coincidence. Our system has left these communities behind. Now, we know that pre-existing conditions, comorbidities, are linked to poor health care over time. People who can't afford to see a doctor skip the preventative care that's critical to staving off disease later in life. That group is particularly vulnerable in today's pandemic. Some clinics are trying to bridge the gap between local communities and healthcare systems. Our own Texas public radio reporter, Michael Trevino, has more on that from South Texas. It's 9.45 at night. McAllen Family Urgent Care is mostly empty. The clinic closes in 15 minutes and only one patient remains. A man in his mid-30s, tall, dressed like a ranchero with a red pearl snap shirt tucked into his jeans. He speaks Spanglish with the woman behind the counter about how he can pay his bill. This is a tough but typical conversation, especially here in Hidalgo County, where 31% of residents have no health insurance, the highest rate of uninsured persons in the state. That 31% represents a huge gap in the healthcare system that is not easily bridged. So today I'm going to take you through how three women in the valley are working to unite the needs of the local community with the healthcare system, from one side over to the other. From the island of the healthcare system, Dee Trevino reaches across. So how are you doing today? Well, I'm doing fine. I'm glad you just came with Yeah. Because I had told them you would be here. Dee's the administrator for the urgent care. She's in her early 70s, but still running the clinic. Although she's not from the area, she put her roots down here. McAllen was the first place I had lived where anybody could be what they wanted to be. It didn't matter whether you were born black, yellow, white, Hispanic. This is a place where anyone who works hard can succeed. She shows me around her small clinic, and it's a short tour. Where the work takes place. Uh She says the clinic is open to everyone. They have a payment plan system where anyone who needs care can pay in cash. No insurance needed. Since healthcare can be expensive, she tries to keep folks out of the hospital. And with the current pandemic, she's working even harder to do that. So what we are trying to do is in the midst of panic and mayhem, which are exactly what's going on down here, we are actually trying to practice whole, good, quality medicine along with it. 
And we are actually trying to work more closely with our elderly population to teach them that if it is not a heart attack or a stroke, almost everything else can be treated outpatient. That means they work to treat anything non-life-threatening, from broken bones to filling prescriptions. Whatever keeps people out of the hospital. And that includes preventative health care, like checkups, that can lower the risk of comorbidities, such as diabetes, high blood pressure, and respiratory issues, all things that contribute to the severity of COVID-19. But now the clinic is also fighting a pandemic, testing hundreds of people and providing care for those not sick enough to go to the hospital. I think we've lost track of, or at least we have been so overwhelmed. So I can't tell you how many of our county's positives we are, but at least through... April and May, and probably to early June, we were picking up here about 10% of the county's positives. The hard part about all this, though, is getting people to come into the clinic. Latinos are the ethnic group with the lowest rates of health insurance coverage in the country. And let me tell you, Latinos are a good portion of those in Hidalgo County. Among them, more than 100,000 undocumented people who live within and on the margins of the community. The vast majority have no health care and try to avoid the hospital at all costs. I would say that most of our people that come in and pay are part of a very widespread cash economy we have in the Valley. Most undocumented immigrants work and are paid in cash under the table. But with no health insurance, expenses are paid cash out of pocket. So in an under-resourced and undocumented population, Healthcare has got to be last resort, low cost, and low key. Usually, you can't find the communities if you're ride, just driving down a highway. You would say, where on earth are all these hundreds of thousands of people in Hidalgo County? Well, they are living back from the main highways because they don't really want to be seen. This is it's auto this shops is and taquerias. Yeah. Fruteria. And a fireworks stand. The next morning, I'm on the road with Nelda to visit Norma, who we met earlier. Nelda works with Dee's clinic to find patients who need care. Rather than people coming into the clinic, Nelda goes out into the community to hear what they need. All the politicians text me, you think you can squeeze me in for the COVID? You think you can do it? And I said, Nelda Garza for mayor. Everybody left. Across the gap between the healthcare system and the local community, Nelda Garza is the connecting bridge. Norma, her source on the ground, shares some news. There's been an outbreak at the local pulga, or flea market. Norma herself makes tortillas and tamales out there to sell. She said she had had some symptoms, but never found out if it was COVID. It's an economy amongst themselves, she says. But mirroring the larger American economy, the pandemic has more or less shut that down. And there are no stimulus checks or unemployment sent to this community. So they're left without income. But despite that, Norma has a hearing coming up soon on an immigration case. She has her papers, but says she needs a lawyer. Nelda's trying to help her out. Norma tries to refuse. They're stupid. They want their business, but yet they're going to consultations $250. Yeah. Like, what the hell? She'll get the money together herself. She and some friends are having a bingo night soon. She says that everyone chips in cash for plates of food and small prizes. 
Prizes that mean a lot these days, like cleaning supplies and cash. But she says, really, they play bingo for fun. If someone needs the money, they'll just pull the cash together and give it to them. And this week, it might be her turn. Norma's bingo night money pool? That's how the community reaches back across toward the healthcare system. They need healthcare, and they're doing everything they can to get it. Not everyone has insurance or enough money for legal fees, but the community comes together to help one another out. And these days, everybody needs some help. Nelda says the community there is very tight. And I guess that's what you have to be when you're excluded from the healthcare system forced into an underground economic system and pursued by an immigration system, all while in the middle of a pandemic, of course. It's not okay, but the information exchange is all Norma and Nelda can do about it for today. Bye. On the drive back to McAllen, Nelda and I talk about where she grew up in Hidalgo. Then she gets a phone call. Hi, mamashita. Yo le hablo. Pa, I'll call you later. Oh my God. It's because I raised her, so she's really a She's 35 years old. Mm -hmm. She's tested positive. So you've been personally affected by this? Yes. My uncle passed away because of COVID. Sorry about that. Just all of a sudden. Just happened. This pandemic has hit everyone in this community, whether directly or indirectly. No one is immune. And that's exactly why we have to bridge this gap in the first place. Because it's not just a gap between the healthcare system and a community, it's a gap between the healthcare system and all communities. Because we're all connected. The virus doesn't just attack individuals, but the community at large. So we'll either have to get through this thing together, or we won't get through it at all. And perhaps no one knows that better than the residents of Hidalgo County. That's Michael Torino in McAllen. Thank you, Michael. So from the southern border to America's interior. Straddling the borders of New Mexico, Arizona, and Utah is Navajo country. It's more than 27,000 square miles of land occupied by more than 170,000 of this continent's first people. Indigenous Americans. Currently on the Navajo Nation, there are nearly 8,000 cases of COVID-19 with more than 350 lives lost. The number of cases there per capita is higher than anywhere else in the country. Polly Dinetclaw is a reporter with the Navajo Times, and she's going to take us there. I was born and raised on the Navajo Nation. Our community is widespread and vast and open. From the top of the mesas that surround my mother's community of Manuelito, New Mexico, you can see for miles across the high desert my people have always resided on. The very place that has become known worldwide for the high number of dinkos in Tsai and Nahasteitz Ada, or COVID-19 cases and deaths. Welcome to my home community of Gallup, New Mexico. It's hot today and it's windy. I'm staring at an open field near where I live, and I didn't realize how dry it's gotten. I guess I kind of just got used to it. 
The county I live in in rural New Mexico, McKinley County, at one point led the nation in the highest per capita cases over places like New York City. The majority of people who live here are Native American. My own sister, a healthcare worker at the front lines of this pandemic, tested positive and has since recovered from this disease. The high rate of cases is shocking, considering how rural and spread out our communities on the Navajo Nation are. All right, here we go. Beginning of mile one. I drive the 35 minutes from Gallup to Fort Defiance. We are at mile 21 and passing into Arizona now. Because I receive better quality of care at Sahutso than Gallup Indian Medical Center. We have finally arrived at mile 30 to my hospital, Sahutso Medical Center in Fort Defiance, Arizona. The nation covers three states and is 2,700 square miles and roughly the same size as West Virginia. There are only 13 grocery stores, 12 healthcare facilities, one in three homes not having running water, meaning people have to haul water, buy bottled water, or go to the laundry to wash their clothes. Each store, laundromat, water well, and gas station becomes a point of contact a place of spread as people search local and border town grocery stores for basic necessities like disinfectants, food, and water. Throughout every step of the pandemic, uh, especially those of us who've been organizing and working in our communities pre prior to this pandemic, uh, we were already hyper aware that due to our ethnicity and the, the history and legacy of colonization, um, that there was gonna be certain vulnerabilities that our communities were gonna be grappling with. Janine Yazi is the New Mexico lead coordinator for a $5.4 million mutual aid fund called the Navajo and Hopi Families COVID-19 Relief, a fund created by former Navajo Nation Attorney General Ethel Branch. It started as a GoFundMe, but has since grown into an organization. The fund provides basic necessities to the Navajo community. This is not the first project Yazi has worked on, so Yazi suspected our community would be vulnerable to this virus. Um, that there was going to be certain vulnerabilities that our communities were going to be grappling with that would inhibit a lot of the... Um, the, the social distancing requirements from being implemented right away. One of those being the general lack of investments and community development and access to resources to help families through this pandemic. And a lot of our initial concerns were about just due to generations of like poor investment and all of the challenges that come for with the use of federal dollars, which are really the only significant resources that are given to tribal communities. Federal money runs our healthcare system, justice system, and less than half our tribal government. We also receive added funding from the Bureau of Indian Affairs and Indian Health Services through the state. We're gonna see significant barriers to access to food and water during this period and just um, the, with, the, with access to water in general, like because our communities have been deemed sacrifice zones for so long, um, just the generations of environmental contamination made people even distrustful of piped water resources. 
So it was very clear to us that it, we couldn't just depend on a lot of the data that tells us that in many communities, we don't have like 30, up to 30% don't have access to drinking water and drinking water infrastructure. But we knew that even those that did have this access still had a lot of hesitation about using and depending on those water resources. There are over 500 abandoned uranium mines on the Navajo Nation that continue to contaminate water resources. These mines were abandoned by uranium companies after declaring bankruptcy in the early 2000s, leaving the federal government to take over the multi-million dollar land reclamation projects. So these worries are not unwarranted. And to top this all off, my community continues to not have reliable access to broadband. I am currently outside of the post office in Winter Rock and I tried to open my TikTok and load a 15 second video. I gave up after about three minutes. Since the pandemic, social media and the internet in general has been the main platform for updated information from our Navajo Nation government to the people. You have to have access to updated information regularly and not having access to broadband, not having access to different types of news sources, um, the shutdown of a lot of like community centers and chapters that people depended upon to get information um, that really led to a huge gap in just public education and awareness about what we were dealing with and the severity of it. Wi-Fi, broadband, and cell phone service are not reliable on the Navajo Nation. In some places, completely inaccessible because of how rural our communities are. I'm here out in Ship near Shiprock, New Mexico, and I don't have any LTE service, no internet services out here. Um, I won't have any internet services until I get closer to Sheep Springs, New Mexico, and even then the internet is so slow I can barely load a web page. As I'm traveling throughout the Navajo Nation, I don't even have reliable access to the internet through my cell phone. So people didn't know how deadly this virus is and how they can protect themselves by social distancing, wearing a mask, and washing their hands or using hand sanitizer. The Navajo Nation president closed our local governance offices called chapter houses, which act as municipalities and a go-to for public information. It's been reported by national outlets that the lack of running water on Navajo is the biggest contributing factor. Desert with limited water. We tell people to wash their hands, but a study showed 30% of the homes on Navajo Nation don't have running water. If you don't have running you know, water in your home, how are you going to wash your hands successfully? Yes, there are ways to wash your hands, you know, whether that's with a bowl of water or something else, but it's really important. However, people on the grounds, including myself, remain skeptical of this analysis. I'm not 100% sold on the idea that sanitation facilities are the reason, or the lack of sanitation facilities and running water are the reason for the spread on Navajo, um, the higher infection rates or fatality rates. That was Navajo Nation Council Delegate Carl Slater, who was part of the legislative body of the Navajo Nation. And... There hasn't been any data presented to say, you know, this number of households come from places with no running water and, you know, this family uh, became infected faster than this family or this community got infected more than this community. Multi-generational households and cluster homes where multiple families live in close proximity to one another has created the conditions where COVID-19 sweeps through whole families. 
the nation's housing stock has a bigger Im- or it is having a bigger impact because that's where there is a combination of anecdotal, but the sort of anecdotal evidence that's confirmed by every single reporting agency or, you know, contact tracers or people who are intimately involved with it. You know, they're saying in their experiences, it's people who come in and they infect their entire household because of the asymptomatic spread. One mutual aid worker, Shandine Yazi, who is a member of the Info Shop, a self-described communist, anarchist, feminist collective that is a nonprofit, has talked with Navajo families about the issue of multi-generational households firsthand. It was really sad to hear that when we went to visit this family, they were telling us about another family just down the road who had lost everybody except one survivor. You know, you lost grandma, you lost grandpa, you lost the husband, you lost the son, you lost the daughter. Yazi and the Info Shop are a team of six to eight young people who are helping to deliver produce, meat, essential pantry items, disinfectant, masks, and gloves to families who live in remote areas near the capital of the Navajo Nation in Winter Rock, Arizona, as well as up into the New Mexico part of the Navajo Nation. It was really heartbreaking to go to the community of Sawmill, and we went down a road that was like really hella dirt road. It was like kind of going through a canyon, and... We got there and we delivered them food and it was just really heartbreaking because one, they don't have running water, they don't have electricity, they also have more than eight people within the house. We are being told by the CDC that there's only supposed to be five people at max. And these are people that have to go out to do everything. When you think about washing your clothes or using water to take a shower or a bath, these people have to haul water. Not only are water resources contaminated, but are also drying up as the Navajo Nation has been going through a mega drought since 1996 that has deeply impacted Navajo families who rely on these local water resources. And it's just for them, I know that they're they're telling me that the wells, the natural wells and aquifers are all drying out. And so even to get livestock food and water is really difficult. And because of this pandemic and the lack of resources we have, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming that that's what has been contributing to the high rates of death and then exposure. The numbers on the Navajo Nation hit a record of 240 in a single day in May before plateauing and creeping back down. But there was a spike of 121 new cases in a single day just a few weeks ago, after the Navajo Nation lifted the 57-hour weekend lockdowns for two weeks. In an effort to bring the number of cases back down, an executive order was issued to reestablish weekend lockdowns for the next three weekends. This pandemic has affected me deeply in ways I have yet to even comprehend. When my community is in mourning, we cut our hair. I think this is why one evening in May, I cut almost a foot of my hair off. I felt I needed to. Later, I realized I'm in mourning for the people my community has lost. I report on the loss. I hear stories of loss. I document loss. To the outside, these numbers are just numbers. To me, they're my clan relatives. They're my friends, family members, my nephews, coworkers my sister's co-workers, and our cultural carriers. They are more than just a number on an ever-increasing death toll. Thank you, Polly Jeanette Clark with the Navajo Times.
The toll infectious diseases have taken on indigenous people goes back to the 1400s. Estimates vary, but before Europeans showed up, up to 18 million indigenous people lived, loved, raised families, and built communities in North America. After Europeans, like Christopher Columbus, arrived, European infectious diseases like smallpox, typhoid, bubonic plague, mumps, measles, whooping cough, and, yes, the flu, would burn through native populations with no immunity to such diseases, killing millions. Yet here we are, more than 500 years later, with Columbus and men like him celebrated as brave discoverers of a new land, like native people didn't exist here for thousands of years. And that idea is enshrined in our monuments. Many major cities have statues of Columbus somewhere. Still, people have long questioned who these statues honor, the version of history they celebrate, and the version of history they ignore. What statues should stay? And what statues just need to come down? One such statue stood for more than a century in a place of honor in New York City. A man, a doctor, a gynecologist in bronze, celebrated for his work improving women's health. But that's not the whole story. The whole story is quite sinister and has a lot to teach us about the inadequate and sometimes inhumane medical treatment black people too often receive in America. Let's dive in. I am on 101st Street, walking to Fifth Avenue. It is really sunny. Lucy Wong walks along the edge of Central Park in the heart of the city. Cars stream past on one side, and on the other side sits one of the world's most famous green spaces. Lucy's ventured out on this bright afternoon on the hunt. She's searching for something. Where it's supposed to be. Right on Fifth Avenue. And I think it's between 102nd and 103rd Street. There's a ton of traffic because there, I think there are a few hospitals around here and I started noticing that there are a lot of ambulances. Lucy is a journalist. She's covered science and health and she's looking for something that's intrigued her throughout her career. It's a statue, you might have guessed of James Marion Sims. Where is it? Where is it? So I'm here. They boarded it up. And so the base, which was inscribed with more information, everything has been boarded up. So Sims was known as the father of modern gynecology. His statue was once perched on the Museum Mile in East Harlem. Now, all that remains is a boarded-up pedestal and a sign from the Parks Department. When you're facing out on the right side, it is the New York Academy of Medicine, and on the left side, it is a museum. And the museum is the Museum of the City of New York. 
Sims was celebrated by the medical community for developing the speculum, a tool that healthcare professionals use to examine the vagina and the cervix. But he was mostly known for developing a treatment for vesicovaginal fistula. Now, that's a term for an opening that occurs between the bladder and vagina, sometimes during a long labor. Now, I think most women who've had babies can agree that's pretty good. If I'd been helped by the treatment he pioneered, I might want to build a statue to him myself. But, but this is the thing. Sims developed this treatment by experimenting on enslaved black women. And he did it without anesthesia. I'm starting to rethink my statue. And so did New York. Dr. Sims' statue came down in 2018, but that doesn't mean Dr. Sims' legacy doesn't loom large over medicine, particularly when it comes to treating people of color. I'll let Lucy Wong take it from here. The neighborhood the statue is in is largely Hispanic and African-American. I actually, myself at the time, only lived three blocks away. That's Harriet A. Washington. She teaches bioethics at Columbia University. She's also the author of the book, Medical Apartheid, The Dark History of Medical Experimentation on Black Americans from Colonial Times to the Present. For Harriet, Dr. James Marion Sims is an example of how America still struggles to confront its problematic history. I lived in Germany for a while as a child, and I go back every year to visit friends. And when I go to Germany, you never see statues to Goebbels or Hitler or the architects of uh, National Socialism. In Germany, they have chosen to honor the victims of the Holocaust and National Socialism. For whatever reason, we choose to honor the perpetrators. Dr. Sims has been honored in academia throughout history, and the statues around the country portray him as an American hero. One says, in South Carolina, I think one says, um, he treated empress and slave alike. Well, he treated an empress and he treated slaves, but he did not treat them alike. Dr. Sims knew that curing vesicovaginal fistula would provide fame and fortune. To develop a treatment, he would buy or borrow enslaved black women to experiment on. So this was the way things were done. This was the norm, not an example, not an outlier, not an exception. This was the norm. I think what's important here is that it is terrible that the women were treated without anesthesia. But to me, the the most egregious violation is the fact that these were women who did not consent to what was being done to them. Anesthesia wasn't widely used until 1846, but Sims did use ether vapors when he treated white women. This would knock them out. Sims didn't use ether for black women because he operated on the belief that black people didn't feel pain the same as white people. And it wasn't only Dr. Sims, all the prominent physicians in the United States, the leaders, the American School of Ethnology, they frankly said that African-Americans were essentially immune to pain. They don't feel pain the way whites do. All of these beliefs actually supported enslavement because if you had creatures who didn't get certain diseases and didn't feel pain, then it was perfectly ethical to drive them and unmercifully and to beat them on any pretext. This idea, according to Harriet, still lives on today. The reason why they don't treat African-American pain as well as they treat white pain is that they, they also believe that black people don't feel pain as much as whites do. This has been a very stubborn belief in American medicine. And the surveys and studies have shown that it's something that doctors still believe, unfortunately. 
One study Harriet references comes from the University of Virginia in 2016. The study showed that out of 222 white medical students, more than half endorsed at least one false belief about the biological differences between blacks and whites, such as blacks' skin is thicker than whites. Those students who endorsed these statements were more likely to report lower pain rates for blacks versus whites when they were asked to look at mock medical cases. So at the individual level, we know that the healthcare system in the United States is infected with and permeated with racial bias, which is a polite way of saying racism. Professor Dana Bowen-Matthew, again, from the University of Virginia School of Law. When doctors take the Hippocratic Oath and vow to do no harm, they also vow to use treatment to help the sick according to their ability and judgment. But our judgment can be influenced by our subconscious. And we have a lot of studies that show us that all of us walk into a clinical encounter on both sides, the provider and the patient side, with racial stereotypes in mind. And I carry those unconscious images with me into the conversation, and they inform whether or not I communicate with you in a warm way or in a cool, distant way, whether I touch you in order to give you a sense of comfort and connection or instead I don't. We have seen studies that record conversations between patient and provider show us that a white patient is less likely to have a conversation where the doctor is verbally dominant, where the doctor doesn't solicit information. And a black or Latinx patient is more likely to have a conversation where they get to say very little and what they say is less likely to be credited and believed. I spoke with a home health nurse named Mia Mungin, who was sick with COVID-19 the second week of March. This was before the United States declared a national emergency and even before the World Health Organization declared COVID-19 a pandemic. Mia wasn't the only person in her family who got the virus. Her younger sister, Raina Zoe Mungin, also got sick. When Zoe went to the emergency room at Brookdale Hospital in East New York, They diagnosed her with a viral infection and told her that they weren't doing COVID-19 testing at the time. Mia shared her story with me. She went to the doctor Sunday. That Thursday there, I started to feel a little bit better. And I made it up the stairs to see her. I was still winded, but not as bad. And I went into the room. My mother said she didn't look like she was getting better. Just me and mom, she she just looked worse. And I asked my daughter, I said, Naya, can you come with me to take her to the hospital? So it was so hard to get her down the stairs. And I said, you know what? This is not what this is. This is a 911 call because I don't know why you're having problems breathing like this. So I called 911 and when 911 came and the 911 attendant said, who called 911? And I said, I did. He said, I have a report that someone is having an asthma attack. And I said, yes, my sister is having an asthma attack. She's like, she's winded. She's like breezing. And he goes, hold on, hold on. Everybody calm down, calm down. And there was no riot. There was nobody shouting, screaming. I'm just having a regular conversation. But that was his response to me. And then he said, um, I said, I can reassure you she's not having an asthma attack. And I said, I'm, I'm looking at the way she's breathing right now. She's not, she's not in distress. So I go, can you look at her and um, re-listen to her lungs? So he pulls out his stethoscope and he listens at her lungs. And Zoe has on this big hoodie, like a sweatshirt. And I was a little confused because he picked it up. He didn't go underneath the sweater to listen to her lungs. He put it on outside the sweater. 
And it wasn't like he had the most prestige stethoscope. Okay? So he listened to it and he was like, her lungs is clear. Her lungs is clear. She's okay. She's okay. And she said to him, well, why can't I breathe? And he says, well, you're breathing. She says, well, why am I having problems breathing? And he said, um, I guess that maybe you're panicking. You know, try to control your breathing. So he said, if you want, we could take it to the hospital. And I said, yeah. So he took it to the ER and he said, well, I hope you know that you can't go in. I said, well, what is that supposed to mean? They said, you can't go inside because it's a complete lockdown because of COVID. The doctor came out and they, they said, you know, Munjin. And I came and I said, that's me. He explained to me, he says, well, she got two things. She's, she's okay and she's doing a lot better. He says, we would like to keep her, but she doesn't want to stay right now. I called her on the phone and I spoke to her and I said, Zobi, why don't you want to stay? I don't understand. She says, Mia, they don't test for COVID here. And I said, okay. So the nurses told us that only HHHC, the city hospitals were the only ones tested. They wasn't testing none of the hospitals. So she came out. The doctor asked me if I can watch it at night. I watched her all night long and her breathing just wasn't the greatest. She just looked so tired. I got up that Friday and I went to the pharmacy for her. So as I was leaving, my mother called me and she says, me, she says, she just doesn't look good. Got home and then I didn't have my stethoscope, but I can hear the auditory wheezing. It was so pronounced. And we called for 911 and 911 arrived. She went on the back into the ambulance and the door closed. I just knew that it was working on her. The EMT came out and they said she felt better. So we went into Brookdale and I waited there for about three or four hours. Nobody would give you no updates, no nothing. I spoke to a doctor eventually and they said, you know, um, she is intubated and she's on life support. And I just started to cry. So later on, I got a phone call that said that she tested positive for COVID positive. And that was Saturday. So then I said, well, wait a minute. Well, where did you get the test from? You just told me that no one was testing in this hospital. So where are y'all getting the COVID testing from? So then they said, oh, we had tests, but we only had a limited amount of tests. Two different stories. Because you kept telling us is that you're not testing, but how is it that on Friday, when she was in the ER, y'all tested her for COVID? When she was here the day before and wasn't in distress. Zoe had to be transferred to two other hospitals. And after weeks of battling COVID-19, Zoe passed away on April 27th. Although Zoe didn't pass away at Brookdale Hospital, Mia thinks that they could have tested her the first two times she went to the ER before her symptoms became more severe. Mia says she doesn't fault them and thinks that they did the best that they could. We reached out to Brookdale Hospital for comment and have not received a response. Mia has since recovered from the virus, but she still carries the after effects. You ever heard of something called survivor's guilt? Why did she didn't make it and I made it when I'm the one that came and got sick and brought this in here? Um, it's time to return to work soon, you know? And like I was telling her friends, I said, I've been a nurse for 20 years and I don't want to do it no more. I, I don't. Because I devoted my whole life to this here. And look what just happened. I brought something in the home and, and, and killed a member of my family. Like, Mia, you can't do that. You can't. That's what happened. You want me to serve? For what reason? Because when I need help, I can't even get help. 
I just really felt like the government failed her. Like they, they, they all did. They failed her. You know, the whole healthcare system failed her. You know, they did. Mia's grief and pain and frustration. It's palpable there, and it's justified. America's healthcare system failed her sister. Zoe didn't slip through a crack in the system. The whole system has always been broken for people of color in America. And during a pandemic, a broken system kills. As the 100,000th death from COVID-19 in the United States came and went in May, African-Americans comprised more than 20% of the fatalities, despite making up about 13% of the population. On June 30th of this year, the Centers for Disease Control Director Robert Redfield got a letter signed by more than 1,000 CDC employees saying the nation's public health agency, the most respected in the world, is toxic on race. The letter describes an environment in which white managers promote white staff while stifling and discouraging black staff. And it says hundreds of equal employment opportunity complaints have been filed by black employees over decades and nothing happened. The letter authors also say, quote, Systemic racism is not just a concept perpetrated outside these walls. It's a crushing reality for people of color in their daily lived experiences here at CDC. It's that crushing reality of daily lived experiences that is most hazardous to the health of black and indigenous people of color across America. That's why you not only see health disparities in poor or isolated predominantly black or brown communities, white collar people of color in the suburbs and the exurbs also struggle under the weight of racial disparities in health and health care and suffer worse health outcomes than similarly situated white Americans across the board as a result. So the questions and the answers go a lot deeper than poverty and pre-existing conditions. It's almost as though experiencing the trauma of racism in big and little ways every single day of your entire life is not good for your health. Spoiler alert, it's not. There's research on that too. Now, if elite agencies setting priorities for research and health policy in the United States aren't staffed and run by doctors and scientists who look like and understand the experiences of the entirety of America's diverse population, how in the world do we expect any of this to get better? In fact, the letter to Redfield says that's one of the big reasons it hasn't, calling it a key reason why we have witnessed little progress in reducing many of these disparities in the United States over the past 50 years. That's not okay. I'm a white person, and I can't see why this is even controversial. Now, I've heard a few times over the last several months that COVID doesn't care about color. It doesn't care about socioeconomic status. It doesn't care about political party. It's virus, after all. And all it cares about is finding a nice, warm host in which to replicate. It doesn't discriminate. And that's true. 
all things being equal, a virus would impact each community equally. But all of the structures that a society puts in place before a pandemic surges leave certain communities uniquely vulnerable to the ravages of a virus. And they're not the white ones. All things are not equal. No, viruses don't discriminate. We do. Special thanks this week to reporters Polly Danette Claw with the Navajo Times, Lucy Wong in New York City, and our own Michael Trevino and Reynaldo Leanos Jr. with Texas Public Radio for their excellent contributions to the show this week. This episode was produced by Dominic Anthony Walsh and Michael Trevino. Our sound designer is Jacob Brazzati. Our executive producer is Fernanda Camarena, and our news director is Dan Katz. This podcast is a production of Texas Public Radio. I'm Bonnie Petrie. Talk to you soon.